Turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16. And uh, just a quick little heads up for today's uh, sermon. We're going to be all through the New Testament. So if you are fam- not familiar with the Bible, if you're new to uh, Christianity or new to the Bible, I encourage you to find the table of contents in your Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's some on the back, in the back foyer. And we're going to be in, if you want to look in your table of contents, we're going to be in Matthew today. You can find the page number, page number for that. We're also going to be in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be in Galatians. And uh, so I'm going to be asking you guys to turn to each one of those places throughout the course of uh, the morning. But we're going to begin right here in Matthew 16, and I'm going to read it, and then we're going to pray. Matthew 16, verse 13 through verse 19. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but, the, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, come into the Word right now, we we find that our only authority is right here in the pages of Scripture. So this is where we want to stand. Uh, This is where we want to speak from, to be taught from. And so I ask that that, uh, uh, over the next however many minutes that this is glorifying to you and that we are looking for your truth in, in your Word that you have given to us. Open our eyes up, God, to the places in our hearts where we are far from you, to the the deep recesses of our hearts that are dark and hard. And I pray that you expose them even to our own selves and to our own mind so that we may repent and turn to you. And it's in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Are you dating the church this morning? Are you dating the church this morning? I wonder how you'd answer that. Pastor Joshua Harris asks that same question in his phenomenal little book, Dating the Church, or Stop Dating the Church. And we've all seen what happens with uh, extended dating relationships, right? Uh whether it's you or a friend of yours who is in a dating relationship that has gone on for a very long period of time and it isn't materializing in it, in, into any kind of commitment or into any kind of marriage, uh, what, what begins to happen in those relationships? We've all seen it, right? You get critical. You start to get critical of one another, and you start to find all of the different reasons why you ought not to marry this person, why you should not be in a relationship with this person. And so you start to criticize, and you start to say, well, I don't know, she's, 
She might not be as, as pretty as, as I thought my wife would be, or he might not be as strong as I thought my husband would be, or she's not uh, as, as enjoyable to be around as I once thought she was. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if she's going to be a good enough mom for my kids, or I'm not sure if he's going to be a good enough dad for, for, my, for my children. And we begin to criticize, and, uh, and then we start to get annoyed, right? Man, like, if they ask me one more time to talk about marriage, I am going to walk out on this thing. Like, I'm tired of this whole commitment talk. Why can't this person just understand that I'm not sure? And then we continue and we go on and, and either we say, okay, I'm committed, let's get married, or we just continue in the doubts or drift away from that person. It's almost as if there is this healthy phase of time where you ought to question and examine, but at some point, you have to just make that dive into marriage, or you begin on this spiral of reasons why this person might not be good enough. Now, has anybody ever seen that played out in someone's life, whether it's a friend of yours or your own life? I know I have, and I wonder if you've ever seen that played out in church, Dating the church, checking it out, constantly questioning. I'm not sure. I might commit, I'm not sure. What happens? We start to then get critical. The people aren't as loving as I would like them to be. They're not as welcoming as I would like them to be. The sermons aren't as inspiring, and the music's not as, not as good. It's not, the, the, maybe this isn't the kind of church that I really want to be committed to. And we begin to get critical, and after some time, we either make that dive into marriage or we drift. Are you dating the church this morning? Another question that this then brings us to, a good question, is why, did you, why, why do you attend, attend church? Why did you come to church this morning? Why does anybody attend church at all? What is, what is the point of, of coming into a room and sitting for an hour and a half every week? Why does anybody attend church? Why do congregations exist? Is, is the congregation nothing more than simply a collection of warm bodies who are coming into a room once a week and filing into rows and then sitting next to someone that you not, kind of know, not really, and uh, singing some songs awkwardly next to each other, and then listening to a sermon, trying not to fall asleep, and then going home and eating food and watching football. I mean, is that all a congregation is? Why does anybody go to church at all? Is the congregation nothing more than just a, a group of consumers because they feel lonely and they need some friends, or maybe they feel spiritually dry and they, they can find some, some kind of filling there or some kind of inspiration for life? Is the congregation nothing more than just people who file in and consume what leaders give them? And if it's good that Sunday, they put a little extra in the offering box. And if it's not good, they say, I'm keeping my tithe to myself this week. And they go home. What is the congregation? Why are we here? Why are we doing what we're doing? Why did you come to church this morning? 
as, as we begin, I, I, um, I want you just to consider those questions and answer those questions in your own mind as we, as we uh, go through this, this message today. Um, this is the third part of a series called Built that we've been doing on church structure and leadership. And uh, the, the first two weeks were elders and deacons, so we, we've looked at basically the, the leaders of the church. The elders are the spiritual leaders, those who are watching over the flock, guarding the flock. We looked at the qualifications for those elders slash pastors. And then the second week we looked at deacons. These are the servants of the church. They're leading ministry teams. They're meeting physical needs within the church. They're making sure all needs are met. Now, as we went through those first two weeks, you may not have been surprised by either one of those. I mean, you may have said, I've always known that their churches had pastors. I've always known that churches had deacons. Maybe you, say, you would say um, that the clarifications have been helpful, that now I have an idea of what elders ought to do, what an elder's role is. Now I have an idea of what deacons ought to do and what a deacon's role is and how they relate to elders, etc., etc. It may have helped clarify some things. But you may not really be surprised by that, that God calls elders pastors to lead. You may not be surprised that God calls deacons to serve. But this third aspect of church structure this morning might actually surprise you. Have you ever considered the fact that the congregation has a specific role within the structure and the authority of the church? So the congregation then in the Bible is not just people who fill into a building and consume but they actually are given, in the Bible, a specific role in how a church ought to be structured and what authority is to look like in the church. So that's where we're going today, and, and uh, this, this may be new to you, looking at the congregation in this way. I hope for some of you it may be convicting, and um, others it just, might, uh, it just might blow your mind when you begin to see Jesus' call for the congregation. All right, so we're going to start in Matthew 16, which is Jesus' teaching on the congregation. Now, if we're going to start anywhere, wouldn't you agree with me that starting with the teaching of Jesus is actually a pretty darn good place to start? Amen? So, Matthew 16, Jesus begins teaching on the congregation and the role and the authority of the congregation within a church. So, we just read it, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19, and what we see here is, in Matthew 16, is that Jesus asks his disciples, who do you guys think that I am? Who do you think that I am? And I wonder if you were one of Jesus' disciples, how you would have answered that. Who do you think I am? Well, Peter answers it. We think you are the, he says, the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Christ, meaning the Messiah, the chosen one to redeem God's people, you are the Christ and you are the Son of the living God. And, and when Peter responds in that way, I want you to see Jesus' response. I want to point it out to you again in verse 18. He says, um, first of all, he says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my, spirit, or, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 18, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, or Petros, which means what? Rock. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. On what rock? 
on this rock. Now, I, I don't think he's referring to the person of Peter himself, saying, Peter, on you I'm going to build everything. But rather, the rock, the foundation is, that, that, that Christ is going to begin building his church on is the truth, the foundation of the truth that Peter just declared, that you are the Christ, that you are the Son of God. So that rock, that foundation of the gospel, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, he is the chosen one to redeem all of people, he is the Son of the living God, that foundation, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on top of that rock, on top of that truth, on top of that foundation. And what's he going to build? He says, he's going, I'm going to build my church. Now, what's the Greek word for church? Does anybody know? Ekklesia. Everybody say ekklesia. Ekklesia literally means assembly or gathering or congregation, a group of people coming together. So what Jesus is saying then is that I'm going to build a literal, like actual gathering, an assembly, a congregation of people based and uh, built on top of this truth, with this truth at their very core and at their very foundation. So let's just stop right here for a moment, and let's recognize that when we talk about the church, we are talking about an assembly, a literal gathering of people. Now it's true that all Christians are part of the universal church, right? The capital C mystical church that unites us with all saints past and all saints forward. We are all part of the universal church. However, what we have to recognize is that the actual word that Jesus is using here and what we see then played out throughout the New Testament is that when they're referring to the ecclesia, they're, they're actually referring to a group of people. Like a gathering, an assembly of real live flesh and blood people who are coming together and who are talking and they can make decisions and they can think, they can process. This isn't just referring to some kind of mystical online TV preacher community, okay? This is real flesh and blood people. And these people will be built then around this Petros, this rock of the truth of who Jesus Christ actually is. They will be united then on the gospel. So what unites then our fellowship and our community then is not common interest, but it's the gospel. And first of all, I, I, I wonder if that's how you think of fellowship. Because a lot of times I'll hear people say something like, we need more fellowship, or we, we need more, and what, what they're saying is, is, we need more people who look like me, think like me, and talk like me, and act like me, so I can have more common interest with people that, that are like me, Right? And so then we go out with people that are like us and that share similar interests. And then we call that fellowship. Well, is that really fellowship? I mean, the, the, the center of that is, is based on the fact that you all enjoy watching the Ravens game together. Or that you all enjoy going to Brewer's Art together or whatever that might be. That's the center of your community. But what's the center of our community as a whole that unites every single one of us is this rock of the gospel. It's Jesus Christ at the very core and at the very center. And so then our community and our fellowship then extends beyond common interest. And we begin to find fellowship and deep deep commonality with people who are actually nothing like us. And when the world then peeks in on the way that we interact with each other, what they see at the center of our conversations 
is not merely common interest, but it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the fact that Jesus is indeed the Christ, and he is the son of the living God. So, are we all clear on that? Jesus is building a little actual assembly of people based on this truth at, at the very foundation of it. Now look what he gives then to this church, to this congregation or to this assembly. Verse 18 or verse 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what are the keys and what or who is Jesus giving those keys to? Now this, this verse is debated among, uh, among many, many scholars. Um, people that I respect would differ on these interpretations. But I, I do want to tell you what I think it means, what I think the keys are, what I think Jesus is referring to, and why, and why, why I think that. So first of all, I, I think that the keys of the kingdom are given to the church. They're given to the assembly, to this gathering, this, this congregation that Jesus here is referring to. And I'll tell you why I believe that in just a moment. And second, I believe these keys have the ability, well, it says they have the ability to bind and to loose all things on earth. So they come with this special, like, heavenly authority on earth to bind and to loose. And what I believe that authority is, is the affirmation of who believes in Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. Now let me show you why I believe that. Look at verse, two chapters over, Matthew chapter 18. Um, we see here in verse 15, the very first inc incident of um, church discipline, and, or first teaching, rather, on church discipline. So, so church discipline stems all the way back to the very teachings of Jesus. And what Jesus says here in ver chapter 18, verse 15, he says, if your brother sins against you, so if someone is doing something wrong against you, he says, then approach him, like go to him and see if you can work it out, see if, see if you can convince him to repent and to change. And if that doesn't work, he says, then take two or three witnesses along with you. And if he still does not listen to the two or three witnesses, what it says, look at verse 17, it says, if he refuses to listen to them, he says, tell it to the, what's the word? the church, the ecclesia, the assembly, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So if he refuses then to listen to the assembly, the church as a whole, then at, at, the, at that point you should, he says, treat them as if they don't believe the gospel. Treat them as if they are an unbeliever as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, quick side note, how do we treat unbelievers? With love, with respect, we pursue them. But it is fundamentally a different kind of relationship than we have with believers, right? So he's saying your, your kind of the, the relationship that you have with this person now must fundamentally change from that of a brother or a sister in Christ to that of an unbeliever. So now we're pursuing them with the gospel. 
And so Jesus is then saying that the church, the assembly, is the final authority on this matter, correct? That we bring this brother to, to the church. And then what he, look what he says in the ne- next verse. Verse uh, 18, he says, Truly, I say to you, so he's repeating what he's already taught, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus then is giving the authority, a a special heavenly authority given to earthly people for the binding and loosing, for the determining of whether or not someone is indeed a Christian. Now, as, as, as we go on through the New Testament, we need, we need to do this. We need to think, th- think of it in this way. If Jesus is in fact saying that the congregation, the assembly that's built around this is not just simply a group of people that file into a building and that listen to a sermon and awkwardly sing music, but rather that they have this profound um, God-given authority on earth then that must be congruent with what we see in the, the rest of the New Testament, correct? So the next question is, is what examples do we see in the, in the New Testament that show us what the congregation is and, and what authority the congregation has in the overall structure of the church? So first of all, what we see is this. After the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels. After the Gospels, almost all of the remainder of the Bible... So this portion right here, almost all of the remainder of the Bible is written to congregations, to the members, to the assembly, not to church leaders. Now there are a couple in here that are written to church leaders. They're known as the pastoral epistles. But the the bulk of it is written not to church leaders, which should surprise us today, I think. In our culture, it's not written to church leaders, it's written to church members. It's written to you. It's written to the congregation. And, and we even see the congregation then at the very center of uh, church life. At the, the very soul of the church is the congregation. So I was, I was reading Romans 15 recently, or Romans, and I, and I got to Romans 15. And there in Romans 15, toward the, toward the last verse, Paul is writing to the church where? The church in Rome, right? Romans. So it's the church in Rome. And in the last verse, he says, of Romans 15, he says, I'm looking forward to coming to you with joy and being refreshed in your company. Now, that like, I was reading that and I I just like stopped and I was like, wait a second, this is written to the congregation. And we just don't see that today. Like it, it, today, if, if a pastor, or theologian, or church leader were, were going to be visiting us, he would probably write to me. And he would say, Joel, I'm looking forward to coming to you and uh, looking forward to coming in joy and, and spending time with you and celebrating with what God's doing in, 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 in your church and being uh, uh, refreshed in your company. Right? 
But that's not what's happening in Romans. He's writing to the congregation, to the assembly. And he's saying, when I come to you, not the leader, when I come to you, I'm looking to be refreshed in your company. So my very interaction with you as I enter into your times of worship, like there's going to be something special there. Something that's going to rebuild up the Apostle Paul. And he's going to be refreshed in, in the midst of their company. And we see this throughout all of the New Testament. Um, we, when we get to 1 Corinthians, we see something then that's, that's quite striking. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So the, the church then is to have this, this kind of community, the word to embrace this kind of fellowship that, that a church leader would look forward then to come to Baltimore and not meet with me, but to meet with you, the congregation, and be refreshed and be filled by you, the congregation. So the sense of community. What we see in 1 Corinthians 5, though, is, is that the, the congregation is to have more than just community. The congregation is to be more than just fellowship. Now, fellowship and community is important, but that's not where it ends. So in 1 Corinthians 5, what we see is a whole different level of what, the, what it means to be part of a congregation. So look at 1 Corinthians 5, verse, right there in verse 1. It says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now that's pretty bad, right? There's, there's a man who's part of their congregation, a member if you would, and he's having relations with his father's wife. Now I'm hoping that that's not his own mother. Let's just say that his father's remarried for the sake of our own, whoo, Right? He's having relations with his father's wife. And here's the crazy thing, is the church in where? Who's this written to? The, uh, Corinth, there you go. The church in Corinth is celebrating how gracious we are. Look, we're saved by grace, not by works. And so we're going to celebrate that. We, this, this man, okay, he's sinning, he's doing something that's pretty crazy, but he's saved by grace, not by works. So we're going to celebrate how gracious we are. And Paul now is writing to them, and he's like, well, I don't know if you should be celebrating this. Look at verse 2. He says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, this is what I want you to note right here, is again, Paul, as he's writing this, is not chastising or getting on to the church leader. For tolerating this brother. He's actually getting on to the congregation for tolerating this brother. Now this, this is what begins to blow our mind when we start to think about this. That we are responsible to one another in such a way that if, if this were to happen in our midst, and if there was someone among us who was in that kind of sin and, and we were tolerating it, and Paul were to write a letter to us in 2012, he wouldn't write it and say, Dear Joel, I can't believe you're tolerating this. You've got to deal with this. He wouldn't address it to the church leaders. 
what he would, uh, do, uh, who he would address it to is who? It's you. He would say, church, congregation, the garden, you guys, members. How can you tolerate this in your midst? So what we see then, beginning with the teaching of Jesus and then being practiced in the church, is that the congregation, the assembly, has certain, a certain amount of responsibility for one another and over one another. This is congruent with uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where you don't have to turn there, but Paul says to the church in Galatia, he says that if someone is caught in sin among you, to those of you who are spiritual, to restore them with gentleness, to gent- gently and loving, lovingly pull this person back. Again, he's writing to the church people, the congregation, and he's saying you have a responsibility to one another. You don't just sit by each other and no, you have a response. And then all, again in Hebrews 10, we, we see again a, a call for the, for the church, the congregation, to, to watch over one another and to encourage one another toward good works, lest we begin to drift. I wonder if you've ever considered your part in a church in this manner. That you don't just simply attend a church and sit next to people and find community with those people, but you are spiritually, in some fashion, to some degree, you are spiritually responsible for that brother. You're spiritually responsible for that sister. And if they begin to drift, you, not the church leaders in and of themselves, but you are the ones to pursue and to go after and to love. And before they drift, you, it's up to you to begin discipling and to begin encouraging people to good works so we don't drift, as it says in Hebrews. So the congregation that has special authority and final authority over matters of discipline. The, the, the congregation is the final court, if you would, on determining whether or not someone is showing evidence of regeneration showing that they are indeed Christians. We can examine their life and say, yes, we believe that you are indeed a Christian. Or maybe someone no longer begins to act like a Christian, and we say, the congregation says no. And the congregation has that authority. In uh, 1918, about 30 years after Charles Spurgeon died, all right, Charles Spurgeon was in London. He was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. After he died, about over a 30-year period, the church just declined, and the gospel was essentially all but lost. And an old member writes, 30 years later, in 1918, writes a letter to the church at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and he's explaining the, the decline of the church and trying to put into an understanding what has happened over the last 30 years since Charles Spurgeon died. And as I was reading his letter, what stuck out to me was this. A a major factor in what he believed was the decline of the Metropolitan Tabernacle was the fact that discipline, like watching over one another, and then following Matthew 18, following 1 Corinthians 5, bringing those who need to be brought forward for discipline. He says discipline was taken out 
of the, the, the responsibility, the authority of the congregation, of the church, and it was given to a special board that handled all matters of discipline. And as he's writing, he says this. He says, the church is the proper court, and no other exists for members or officers or pastors. What he saw as one of the greatest declines was that the church lost their responsibility for one another. And that the congregation no longer saw themselves as responsible for their brothers and sisters who were sitting next to them. And it was taken out of the congregation's hands and given to a special board to handle those issues. The congregation is, according to the New Testament, the final authority on matters of discipline. On who it is that represents Jesus to the world. As we continue through the, through the New Testament, we get to Galatians. Turn to Galatians with me. Chapter 1. And we see there, starting in verse 6, another level of authority within the congregation. Verse 6. He says this, Paul's writing now to the church where? In Galatia. And he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So what we see here in, happening in the church of Galatia is that there evidently are some preachers, some leaders, who are distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they are preaching something that smells different than what was received from the apostles and from Jesus Christ himself. Now, if you are new to Christianity, the, the gospel, the good news of Christianity, is this general term for the fact that we are sinners, that we are broken sinners, and our sin has wreaked havoc in our lives, and that God loved us so much that he sent his son into this world, and Jesus came, the son of God, and lived the life for us on our behalf that we could never live. He then went to that cross, and he died the death for us where God's wrath was placed onto Christ and he absorbed God's wrath on our behalf, rose from the dead, and we have life through him. That is the basics, right, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in some way what's happening here in the church of Galatia is that there are preachers, there are leaders who are distorting that. They're changing it, they're tweaking it. It doesn't smell the same as it once did. It doesn't, maybe the ramifications of the gospel are no longer there. What the gospel should lead you to, the kind of life that it should lead you to. We're seeing how the gospel is slowly being lost here in the church of Galatia. Now, again, who is responsible for this? Is it the, is it the leader? Well, before God, he certainly is. We can back that up in the scriptures. We talked about that two weeks ago with elders. That elders will stand before God and give an account for the way that they eldered. 
But who's ultimate, ultimately responsible right here in, in, in uh, the church of Galatia? It is the congregation. What he says is, how can you have tolerated this? How can you have allowed this to go on in your church? How can you have allowed someone to stand up there in front of the Bible behind the little pulpit and preach to you something other than the only gospel that we know? How could you have allowed this distortion to take place? And to let the gospel, the the only gospel, slip through our fingers. And then what he says is this. He says to the congregation, he says, even if we or an angel from heaven comes to you. So even if I, he's saying, even if I, the Apostle Paul, were to come and stand before you, and if I were to teach something other than the gospel, or even if a freaking angel from heaven, he says, comes to you and preaches something other than the gospel that we received from Christ himself and then through the apostles, the gospel that you know, the gospel that saved you, if an angel from heaven comes and preaches to you a gospel other than that, he says, let him be accursed. Remove him. Fire him. Look, look, fire me as your pastor, if I ever veer from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any future elder, any future pastor that may come after me, fire them. Remove them if they begin to veer from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't tolerate it. So do you see then this layer of authority that the congregation has? So on one hand, we see the authority has the congregation over each other knowing who's representing Jesus, removing those that no longer are representing Jesus. But the congregation also has authority over doctrine, over the gospel, the the protection of the gospel, and to make sure that the gospel is indeed being preached. Now, this leads us to some key questions. Um, Congregational authority is debated widely, and it has been for 2,000 years, because there are some key questions that it raises, and I want to address two key questions that may even be on your own minds, and they should be on our minds as a church as we consider God's role for the congregation in the structure of a church. First question is this, isn't it possible for Satan to use the folly of the congregation to his advantage? You guys tracking with that? Isn't it possible that Satan could use the congregation to create divisions? To create problems? To go against, maybe, the truth that that the elders are trying to communicate? And then we think of horror stories, all right? Horror member meetings, business meetings, all right? I don't know if you've ever been in one that's horrible, where people are just arguing and yelling at each other. Voting on everything. Voting on the color of the carpet. Voting on whether or not we should paint the auditorium. Voting on um, how often we, we ought to do a potluck. Voting on everything as if it's just a sheer democracy and as, as if your authority in the church is to have a vote. Have you, my right as a vote to vote on every little thing the church does. Or another objection that many people raise is that with congregational authority, the weakest link in the congregation is given a voice. 
They're given a, a voice. And, and their voice can be heard on sometimes serious matters, on, on who represents Jesus, on what the gospel is. Another objection would be members, seeing members who storm out, stomping their feet, crying like the little girl after not getting their way. And I've seen that happen. Pretty much. I don't think there was stomping. Not in this church. I think that should be said. <laughs> you guys are awesome. You really are. Don't let it go to your head, though. So, going back to this question, can Satan use the, the authority of the congregation for his own benefit? The answer is yes. <laughs> yes, he can. He can use the authority of the congregation for his own benefit, just like Satan can use any authority for his own benefit. So no matter where the buck stops, right, no matter who has the final authority, if the elders have the final authority, can, can Satan not use them for his own benefit? If a solo pastor, a senior CEO pastor, has the final authority, can Satan not use him for his own benefit? Or if a board, an external board, or a bishop has a final authority, can Satan not use that authority as well? For Of course he can. And in some ways, we can look at church history and we can see every single, you know, every situation, how Satan has perverted and used authority for his own benefit. But Paul, Paul, Paul even knew this, and this didn't seem to change Paul's mind in the way that he talked about the congregation and the authority of the congregation. In 2 Timothy, um, I've got it for the, on the screen here, so you don't have to turn there. In 2 in Timothy, this is one of the letters that's written to a pastor. It's written to a young pastor named Timothy. And um, in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul is about to warn Timothy of the reality that Satan can use the congregation for his own benefit. And what he says is, first of all, he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, or re reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And he says in verse 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves, so they will bring in their own teachers to suit their own passions. So he's essentially saying to this young preacher, like, look, you need to be faithful, you need to preach the word, you need to, re need to rebuke, you need to re reprove. Stay faithful to the scriptures. But you also need to know that you might be fired for it someday. Satan can use the congregation for his own benefit. And it's possible for the congregation to make a wrong decision. And to say, we want our ears to be itched. And we want to bring someone who will tell us and teach us whatever we want to hear. And so, so the congregation then can use, Paul knew that the congregation can use their authority. He even, as he goes on with Timothy, he then encourages them. He says, then do the work of the evangelist. Now isn't that funny? He's talking to a pastor and he says, do the work of an evangelist? Why is that? I mean, every pastor needs to be an evangelist to his own congregation to make sure that there are no unregenerate wolves in the congregation. So pastors on one hand are always evangelizing their congregation. Do the work of an evangelist. 
And then he says, fulfill your ministry. Like, you do your part. Be faithful to your ministry, Timothy. So the answer is, of course, Satan can use, Satan can use the congregation for his own benefit, and Satan can use any level of authority for his own benefit. So what, what does this do for you, though? See, I, I don't think just because Satan can use the congregation in a wrong way, I don't think that, that changes what we see in the Scripture. I think what it does is it should call you up. This should cause you to begin to examine yourself. And, and first of all, ask yourself, am I really a sheep or am I a wolf? Because wolves in the sheep pen do what? They cause a lot of problems for the sheep. They begin to devour the sheep. They chew on the sheep. And you have to ask yourself, am I a wolf or am I a sheep? And secondly, it causes you to get off the bench, to stop playing in the dirt, and picking your nose, and to get in the game, right? Like, we've got to stop playing around. We've got to, this, this is serious authority. This is, a, this is a serious amount of weight that we're talking about here when we recognize that we as a congregation have a certain amount of authority and responsibility that we are to answer for. And it's time for us to step up. It's time to get into the game. And so this then causes us not to run and to fear and to hide from this, but it, it ought to cause us to step up into a greater amount of holiness and understand what our thinking, what our actions, and what our relationship with God actually means for the broader community as a whole. All right, second question is how does, how does this authority the congregational authority, how does, how does this authority relate to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17? So we talked about this two weeks ago with elders. In Hebrews 13, 17, it says uh, that, that the, the flock are to um, obey your leaders and submit to them. So how does congregational authority then relate to uh, the leadership and, and the congregation trusting and following the leadership of the church. And so here's the rub on this. Congregational authority is not congregational leader leadership. Congregational authority is not congregational leadership. And as a matter of fact, what we see in the scriptures, it seems that the congregational, congregational authority is narrow and limited, meaning it doesn't give you the right to vote on absolutely everything. We don't need to take a vote on whether or not we should do a Christmas party. We don't need to take a vote on whether or not we should have an intern program. Like God gives the church leaders to lead. But here's where congregational authority does step in. Congregational authority means you have the right to veto bad leadership. So essentially, one pastor put it this way, trust your leaders or remove them. Like, I mean, allow, allow people to be put into places of leadership as we bring other elders in to the leadership of the church. Put elders in place and trust your leadership or remove them. If you can't trust your leadership, then why ought you not remove them? 
Now, the challenge for many is, on one hand, um, and again, I'm not referring to our church, we see this in the Christian world. Often, Christians will give um, lip service to their leadership, yet at the same time, show their distrust of their leadership through creating controversies and divisions that are needless. And so then how does congregational authority and leadership relate? It comes down to the matter of, a matter of trust. However, the congregation has the right and ought to use their right to veto bad leadership. And no leader is inerrant. No leader is ever going to make every decision in a correct way. So you have the right to veto bad leadership. If, if a leader begins to preach something other than the, than the gospel, you have the right to do what? To veto that leader. To say, no, that's not the gospel that we've been given. And we are going to protect the gospel. If a member no longer is uh, giving evidence of being a Christian, of being regenerate, the membership reserves the right to veto their affirmation of that person as a model of who Jesus is. So the congregation has the right to veto bad leadership and to protect, then, the discipline and the doctrine of the church. And we have to understand this. God has given every church a congregation to do just that, to protect the gospel, to protect the membership, to, to, to oversee... To, to examine, to, to watch over, to, to encourage one another daily. When, when at, the, at the end of the day, when, when this is all done, all right, when we die, or when Christ returns with his kingdom, at the end of the day, when a question arises, was the garden faithful in what God called the garden to, to, to do? Did the garden demonstrate and preach the gospel faithfully for years and years and years? Did the garden faithfully watch over one another and faithfully encourage one another and take responsibility for one another? When that question arises, the answer to that question will fall on the congregation. The final responsibility will fall to the congregation. How will we answer that congregation? Will we remain faithful? Will we protect the gospel? Will we protect the witness of Jesus Christ? Two challenges I want to leave with you. As, as, we, as we wrap up a, this, this series on structure, um, recognizing that the church, the ecclesia, the assembly, is to have such a profound impact in the world that the world may look at the church and say, ah, that's who God is. I see a glimpse of the love of God. I see a glimpse of the love of Christ. As we understand the profound impact that we have as a body, as a congregation, 
two, two challenges to leave with you. First is this. Don't just attend, participate. Don't just attend the church and file into rows and listen and sing and then leave, but participate. When, when my family and I, when we go out to a restaurant, we sit down and um, a waiter comes and brings us our water, right? And then gets our order and then they go back and they make our food for us and they bring the food out to us and they bring us a refill on our water, right? We're waited on when we go to a restaurant. Now, when my family eats at home, it's entirely different, right? I mean, one thing we're teaching our kids is, look, this isn't a restaurant, all right? Family dinner for us is a whole lot different than eating at a restaurant. So if you're going to sit at my family dinner table, you need to know where the faucet's at. Because if, you're gonna, if you need water, you need to go find it and fill up your own glass of water, right? If you're going to eat at the table, well, you better have some you better share in the responsibility. Somebody's got to cook the meal, correct? And you don't want my daughters cooking the meal, so it's got to be either Jess or I. <laughs> no offense, daughters. They'll get there. They're learning. I think they know how to melt butter now. And uh, somebody's got to cook. Somebody has to set the table. Um, somebody has to bring the food out. Somebody has to clean up after the meal. Somebody has to wipe the table. Somebody has to do the dishes, put the, put the leftovers away. Right? Am I not describing a family meal? And I don't know about the home that you grew up in, but my home and the home that I grew up in did not allow a restaurant mentality when it came to the family dinner. My goodness. If I would have had that mentality as a child and expected my mom to serve me, and then I just get up and walk back to my Atari? Wow. Would have been bad, you know? Look, uh, church is not a restaurant. It's a family dinner. All right, so when we think about the congregation, when we think about church, we have to understand, we're not talking about a restaurant here. We're talking about a family dinner. So we don't just simply attend and allow someone to bring us our water and someone to bring us our coffee and someone to serve us and then we, and then we go and, and, and do our own thing and have nothing to do with the responsibility of the load or the ministry. But church, rather, is, is, it's a family dinner where we come together and we all do our part. And so someone sets things up and someone puts a sound system together and someone teaches a, a, a house community. Someone else opens their home for a house community. Someone makes sure that people get meals when they need meals. Someone brews coffee. And we, we, we come and we participate together. If you're not participating, I encourage you to participate. Find a way to begin participating in the life of the congregation. Maybe you like to brew coffee. Well, I know we could use some more coffee brewers. Maybe you like to do techie things like run visuals. Maybe you would like to open your home for a, a small group or a Bible study. But begin to participate in the life of the church. But secondly, I want to I go here because participation in, of, in and of itself is not actually enough. So don't just participate. Own the gospel witness of the church. 
Don't just participate. Own the gospel witness of the church. Recognize that our public image tells the world who Jesus is. Everything we do as members outside of this building, whether that's individually, whether that's in small groups, or whether that's us doing something together, everything we do demonstrates the gospel of Jesus Christ and says this is who Jesus is. And guys, I I want us all to own that. I want us all to recognize that that we are part of this ongoing 24-7 display of the glory of God. And that when the world looks at us, whether that's me individually doing my own thing or with some friends or relating with my family, whether it's you working your job or going to school or whether it's how we come together and worship, that we are to own that gospel witness. That we are to feel and bear the responsibility for one another. That we are to watch over each other. That we're to know each other in, in such a way that we can examine one another regularly. That we can encourage each other toward good works so we don't drift away. And if we begin to drift, another brother or sister comes after us and gently and with love says, brother, I think you need to come back. So let's not just attend, let's not just file, let's participate. Let's, let's, let's be involved in the life of the church, but let's not just participate, let's own the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and let's, let's, let's be a biblical New Testament church. Amen? May, may, may God build His church. May God build us into His church, into a display of His glory, into nothing less than a manifestation of God Himself. Thanks for listening. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank You for your word. We thank you for your instruction to us. We thank you for the fact that we are uh, not to just try to figure things out on our own, but that you have given us some guidelines to help us know what it means to structure ourselves in a way that demonstrates to the world who you are. And God, we want to do that. We want to be this kind of church. I pray that you bring us spiritual leaders, that you raise up spiritual leaders in our midst who will be faithful to the preaching of the gospel. I pray that you raise up servants in our midst who will seek to meet the physical needs of the congregation. And God, I pray that you raise up every one of us as the congregation, that we may come together and that we may feel the responsibility for one another, that we may find sweet fellowship and community as we gather. And God, use all of that for your own fame for your own glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.